You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. Hey, welcome to the Station F podcast. I'm Cindy Yang, and I'm super excited to have Mathilde Collin, the co-founder and CEO of Front, on the show this week. Since starting Front in 2013, Mathilde has raised over $138 million with an impressive roster of investors, including Sequoia, Initialize, and the founders of Slack, Zoom, Atlassian, and more. Mathilde is a bold yet humble and values-driven leader. In this episode, she shares many precious lessons in leadership and entrepreneurship. So without further ado, let's dive in. This podcast is supported by TikTok. TikTok takes brands into the digital era. From helping them reach new audiences to setting their campaigns up for success, TikTok empowers businesses to make the most out of its tools. So what if TikTok was the asset your business needed today to thrive tomorrow? Hi, Mathilde. It's so great to have you with us. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a short introduction of yourself. So for people who don't know you, how do you introduce yourself personally and professionally? I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Front. Um, We are doing a hub for customer communication. So if you want to try to picture what Front is, you can picture it as an email inbox that everyone is familiar with. And on top of it, we add workflows like collaboration or insights or automation integrations. And the result of it is if you're a company that obsess over delivering the best customer experience you can, then Front should help you with that. Uh, We started the company eight years ago. We're now based in San Francisco, in Chicago, in Paris, um, and we have over 250 employees. I had a daughter a year ago. I'm in France right now, but I live in, uh, in San Francisco, and that's maybe the one minute introduction on who I am. Awesome. I heard in one of your interviews, um, you talked about uh, why you wanted to be an entrepreneur um, and how that relates to the slogan basically up front, uh, which is making work happier. And I love that. Can you tell us a bit more about the background story and how did this come about? Of course. Well, so um, a few things. Uh, it's always hard to know, you know, why you do something in life. You need to be very introspective. I think a f- like two things impacted my choice of what I would do uh, as a grown-up. The first one was I was a very happy kid and most of the people around me didn't really like their jobs. And so I think I was not excited to grow up and not enjoy what I would be doing five days a week, many weeks a year. And so for me, just selfishly, creating a place where I'd be happy to come to work every day and hopefully many other people would be has been on my mind uh, since pretty much the moment I can remember thinking about my professional life. And then I took a job right after I graduated. Um, and this job was great in many ways because I learned a ton, but also the culture of the company was um, a culture that made me very miserable. And I started understanding the impact that companies had on the well-being of employees. And and I, I, I don't know, I, I thought I wanted to be very deliberate about uh, the culture we would create. I thought I wanted to create a, a product that would change how people would work. And so today, most of the 
recipes we use to make front a great place to work are also things that we add in our products. So for example, I'm a huge believer in transparency and transparency that is at the core of how we build front. I'm a huge believer in a feeling of belonging, contributing to people's happiness at work. And therefore collaboration is key in the product we make. And so not only it's in the culture and the product that we make, but also in the thought leadership that we produce so that, you know, even if you're not working at front or not using front, you can hopefully benefit from what we learn along the way. So you're right. It's very dear to my heart for, I think, the reasons I mentioned, uh, but that's a big driver for me today. Yeah, and it's actually like something that you measure. So I saw in one of your blog articles that you have an employee NPS score of yes. 97, which is near perfect. Um, and so how do you measure that and how do you make sure that that stays up high? Yeah, well, so when, my first belief is if you want to improve anything in your company, the first step is to measure it. And then once you measure it, it's looking at it. And that's how you can. And so we do the same for internal NPS. Where uh, So we used to measure it twice a year. And then the pandemic hit. And I th we believe that it was better to ask more frequently frontiers um, how they were doing. So we use Culture Amp, which is a tool that we absolutely love and not only we can know you know how happy people are how engaged they are you know the percentage of people that see themselves at front two years from now uh, but also we can be uh, very specific on a few initiatives that we're trying to drive so for example during the pandemic we were very keen on improving um, our employees well-being and reduce their stress level because the world were, was already pretty stressful um, so we measure it, we communicate around it, and we iterate on it, and then we have people responsible at front uh, for showing the results and and telling us what uh, what the action plans are on anything that we want to improve. Awesome. And uh, in terms of uh, like, what's the the kind of steps that you take to to do it? Is it like a quiz or? Yes. Well, exactly. You receive an email in your inbox with many questions and. We aim at having 100% of employees fill that survey. Okay. Holding yourself to a high standard. Yes. High standards is one of our values. <laughs> and what are, the, what are the other values by curiosity? Low ego, high standards, care, collaboration, and transparency. Very cool. These values uh, is something you also, of course, strive to carry in your product. Yeah. What are some of the main use cases of Front? How do companies use Front today? Many different industries, many different teams use Front. What, what they have in common when a team or when a company use Front is they want to uh, differentiate by having amazing customer communication. And so whether it's, for example, an account management team, so you can think of Shopify um, that use Front for all their VIP customers. And so there's hundreds of people at Shopify who make sure that even if someone is on vacation, even if it's a, a question that's been asked where you don't have the answer, you can collaborate behind the scenes. You have the right workflows and integration to answer the fastest possible way with the best answer. So, you know, that's one example. Another example would be uh, Lydia, who is a, a company that you might know. Uh, same thing, like their, their business is pretty complex. They want to make sure that there is this uh, feeling of, uh, customer obsession within the company. And so they use front in every customer facing team um, 
Another example is Sender. It's a logistics company. When you're a logistics company, it's super important that uh, your communication goes well because if not, then you know the result is the shipment A is not delivered to location B, which is uh, not good. But also, it's a um, logistics industry is interesting because it's an industry where I think the the product has been commoditized, uh, and so if you want to win as a business, then differentiating on the customer experience becomes critical. Uh, and so we have a lot of logistics companies using us. And I think the, the common themes are they want to make sure that internally there is this feeling of uh, customer centricity. And so there is good collaboration, good transparency, good visibility. And for the the person on the other side, who's the customer, they want to make sure that you know they feel treated as a, a very important person, whatever their question is. Have you seen any use cases of like, or even types of companies that have surprised you uh, that they were using Front? Or, I guess so. I mean, um, one. Uh, I mean, I, I'll share two examples because they're uh, dear to my heart. Like the the first one is I, I was surprised the last uh, political campaign in France. Uh, most uh, most people were using it. Um, and so in, including the, the one who won afterwards, uh, right now, um, COVID list, I don't know if you've heard of them, oh, they're yes. the biggest website for, um, uh, uh, creating a waiting list for vaccines in, in France. And honestly, the, the thing that they told us was that without France, they would have never been able to handle the hundreds of thousands of requests they've received. And, it's really the backbone of how they match people that have vaccines available and people that want vaccines. So I'm the truth is I'm always surprised by the use case front end. And I, I think the thing that will always amaze me are when people say that without front they couldn't have done whatever they're doing. And 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 you know, this is one example. But I, I'm sure that if we took in three months, there are other things I would be surprised by. Well, we think of classically, you know, um, Shopify, Lydia, these are like tech scale ups. So you, it's kind of like the same universe, but it's interesting to have like some other like completely different examples also of how people use the product, right? Totally. Um, so I want to also talk about the topic of fundraising. I've been told that you're also the queen of fundraising. <laughs> so the audience that we have at Station F is mostly early stage companies. Um, and I was wondering, what are some learnings that you've had along the way of this journey? So many of them, I, I'll, I'll force myself to pick three because otherwise it could be an hour-long podcast. But, okay. Um, they have three. So the first one I'd say is um, people o- o- often look for you know advice on how to to raise money and, and when to raise money. And I think on the, on, I'll share advice on both, but on the when... Um, I feel like I have and other founders that I've talked to have underestimated how important it is when you raise money for you as a CEO to be in a good mindset. And so, of course, it's important that you have good metrics, you've reached milestones, which everyone will tell you. Um, but at the end of the day, I've realized that investors do a good job at you know, feeling whether you're someone that have conviction in what you're doing. And the journey of an entrepreneur is a roller coaster, and everyone knows this. It means that literally one day you can be so confident in your business, and you know a week after your confidence can be very low, and that's normal. And you know no one needs to know that except for you. But I do really believe that you should, when you have a high, 
and when you're at, at the top of your uh, roller coaster, you should that's the moment you should raise. And if all your metrics are good, but you don't feel confident for whatever reason, then that's not an optimal moment for you to raise. So the importance of your m- mindset, I think, is underestimated. The second thing is uh, we've we've had a ton of success in how we've raised money, and and I do believe that one of the reasons why was because we've always told a good story. And the power of storytelling when you're a CEO is, to me, incredible, whether it's to motivate your team to hire the best people you can hire and to raise money, for example. But one of the um, tips I've used and I still use today in every presentation I do, including decks I build, is you should always start with what you think the story is going to be. You should be incredibly excited about the story and then you should add the metrics or the facts that back up this story instead of saying, here is my deck. I'm going to show the size of the opportunity or growth and whatever. Like This is not a story you can get excited by. And at the end of the day, people, I believe, join a company, join a round because they want to be part of an exciting journey with you and because they think that it can be, you know, huge and it has to start with a great story that you tell yourself that you tell your team and that yourself you're excited about and I remember um I, I'm a very I'm French I'm very you know down to earth uh realistic direct person and and yet I remember that I was pitching some investors during a few rounds and going you know out of the partners meeting we just had and thinking well like you know if it wasn't me I would invest in this company because I, I just you know was I got a ton of energy from the story I was I was telling others and I was telling myself, and I think this is a good um, testament of how good your story is. Um, so that that would be number two, maybe number three, something that I feel super strongly about, which is fundraising is extremely distracting, and you should either be raising or not raising money. And when you're on, you're on, and all you do is raise money and but if you are not raising money, then I don't think you should take too many investor meetings. Um, I do believe that building relationships is important, but you can do that with one meeting a year. It doesn't need to have you know meeting investors every quarter. Um, you have so much work as a CEO that focuses, in my opinion, one of the key things that will make or break your company and that has to apply on, uh, on fundraising as well. With all the rounds of fundraising that you've done, um, and there's quite a few of them, has your perception of fundraising changed over time? So, I, so I'd say that I've always felt like fundraising was not an end. So there are things that have changed and things that haven't changed. Things that haven't changed throughout the, the years is like fundraising is something that we hardly celebrate at France. And just because to me it feels like a beginning more than a, an end so it's like we don't raise money to celebrate something we raise money because we are given an opportunity to do something else with the money that was given to us and so that hasn't changed which is like fundraising is important but it's a mean to an end it's not an end in itself and this is not how I um, think about you know the importance of front in the world um Maybe the thing that has changed is in the early days, fundraising was a way for us to get credibility. I was this French entrepreneur who had never built a company before. And I do believe that going through YC and getting money from great firms and great angels helped us 
hire good talents or get credibility um, for customers, etc. And I like I don't necessarily think that that's true anymore, or the leverage is maybe smaller. So in that sense, that has like that's that's something that has changed. Yeah, because you, when you started Front, you were actually in Paris, right? And then you moved to DoIC and stayed there, but now also have an office in France. Exactly. Yeah, we, we started the first six months in Paris, then we went through Y Combinator. So we moved there, we decided to stay there. And then three years ago, we decided to open an office in Paris. Um, and so now we're both in France and in the U.S., I think you're also the perfect person to like answer any question about the evolution of both ecosystems because you've seen uh, the Parisian, the French ecosystem kind of evolve over all these years and yep. and built up across both continents. What are some changes that you've experienced? It's definitely been interesting to see how fast that has evolved. I, I would two things that are pretty obvious to me. One is how easy it is today to start a company versus how easy it was like seven years ago. And by easy, I don't like it's always hard to start a company, but from an admin standpoint, it's way easier to start a company, to create contracts, to pay your employees, to like all of this is very easy today in France. And it used to be very easy in the US and harder in France, which I think is uh, and I also think that access to capital is easier today in France than it used to be uh, seven years ago. Um, I, so that's one major change that I've observed. The second one is I think that people find it cooler to to work or to work at startups or to start companies than they used to uh, a few years ago, and so then that creates more talent available and that creates a dynamic that's just great to see. You have companies that have done really well in France, so that creates exit opportunities for the French ecosystem. And so I think it's a virtuous cycle um, that, that I've observed and that now I'm, I'm a part of and I'm, I'm lucky to be part of it. And you're paying it forward, um, not only through your mentoring. Mm -hmm. So I saw that you mentor a lot of entrepreneurs in the earlier stage, but also through your blog, which I want to talk a little bit more about because I really like all the how transparent and how honest you are. Um, I don't know when did you start it and how did you even come about to starting it? I It's a good question. I actually don't know when I started, but I, I'd say if I had to guess, it was probably six years ago, so at the very beginning of front. And I don't know what... So if I had to explain why I started this blog two reasons come to mind. The first one is I've always felt like I was very lucky that a lot of people helped me in my journey and I had a ton of gratitude and giving back was super important. So the truth is, for example, when I first published our Series A deck, which was one of the, the articles on my blog that was seen the most, it was really because I was looking for a template online when I was building our series A. I couldn't find one. I was frustrated and I thought, okay, I'm just going to publish it and hopefully it's going to help other entrepreneurs. So I, I, I think um, since the very early days, I thought I'm just going to share what I'm learning because hopefully it can be helpful to other people. Second thing is, I also think that it helps me clarify my thoughts. It's amazing how if you can't explain simply something, like it means that you don't really understand it. or uh, and, and so I also believe that 
for me to write about some of the topics that they care about, giving feedback or you know how to implement transparency, how to create customer-centric organizations, how to do one-on-ones. These are ways for me to clarify my thoughts. This is also a way for me to get better and, and get feedback. Um, and as I said in the, in the beginning, work happier is something I care a lot about. One-on-ones is a good example of something that we do up front. We've put a ton of thoughts about how to do them well. I do believe it leads to happier um, employees. And so if other people can benefit from it, then I'm just a more fulfilled human being. Awesome. What are some of the most important lessons in leadership that you've learned throughout these years? I'm sure there's many, but if you had to pick like a top three or... This is a tough question. Um, Number one would be uh, on the topic of transparency, you should implement systems that prevent you from deciding whether you should be transparent or not because otherwise it's always tempting to not be transparent when things are not going well but this is opposite to what transparency builds which is trust and alignment so systems can be weekly all hands or monthly emails or visible dashboards in your office like whatever you want but um, I think having as many of these or another example we share our board decks to the company every quarter of the, the board meetings and so if one day I was, you know, not sharing our results or not sharing a board deck or whatever or showing off the uh, screens in, in the office, people would find it weird. And so that forces us to be transparent. So that might be number one. Number two is um, I recently published a, a blog post about feedback. And this is one thing that has been so impactful in my professional and personal life, which is um two sentences I've used that have really changed um, giving and receiving feedback, which is key to you improving and other people improving is one, instead of accusing or being aggressive when you give feedback, for example, you suck because you're always late or you're micromanaging me. Instead of doing this, you say, when you do X, it makes me feel that way because you give the opportunity for the other person to say, well, that's really not how I wanted to make you feel. So for example, when you check in on me all the time, it makes you feel like you don't trust me. That's better than you're micromanaging me, which is, you know, giving other people's intention. And the second sentence, uh, sentences I've used is when someone gives you feedback, you have to uh, remember that it's super hard to give feedback. And so saying, thank you for the feedback. This is what I heard and this is what I'm going to do about it. Even if you're super upset, you find it unfair and whatever, like start with these words and it will make the conversation uh, way more peaceful. Um, number three, I, I would say that um, if, you, if you feel like you're repeating yourself on something that is key, so for example, repeating uh you know your mission or your vision or your strategy like if you feel like you're repeating yourself it it probably means that you're doing enough of it but if you feel like you're not repeating yourself and it was just the situation in which most leaders are uh, they feel like because they've shared their you know quarterly goals once it's fine Uh, if you feel like you're not repeating yourself then it means that you've not said it enough uh, to, to your company, and I, the fact that people have clarity around uh, what the company goals are, and, and literally you should be able to call any employee and ask them, what are quarterly goals, what are yearly goals, um, and if they're not able to share what they are, then you've not done a good job at 
communicating them like clearly enough or frequently enough. And so I'm I'm guessing uh I'm guessing that you use the OKR system up front. Yes, we do. <laughs> um, regarding number one, so transparency, like you said, how do you balance the line between oversharing and uh, not sharing enough? Because I do sometimes hear, especially from CEOs, that yep. they will keep some of the harder news for themselves because they want their team to stay focused on whatever it is that they're doing, which is yes. not really transparency exactly, but it's a white lie. So it's not really, you know, it's like not sharing for the kind of right reasons, right? There is a simple rule I use and we use at front, which is bad transparency and good transparency. So good transparency answers questions, build trust, and bad transparency raises more questions than it answers questions. And I do be, so it's important to have people understand that transparency is not about sharing everything and anything, um, because you would become a very inefficient company otherwise. And if you, it also means that transparency is going to evolve over time. What raises questions when you're a company of 10 people is different from when you're 100. Um, but always being deliberate about why you're sharing something. I, I'll share maybe one example, which is um, when we did our Series B, I think. Um, a few years ago, I was transparent and I told the team, we're, we're going to raise our Series B and this is happening. And then so many questions were asked and people were like, uh, we've not received news in one week. Is it something that's not going well? It's been two weeks, something not going well. It's useless. Like raises way more questions, doesn't help. Uh, so now instead it's better to say, well, we've raised money and this is uh, the feedback we got. So using this, I think is um, a rule that has helped us tremendously in knowing when to be transparent and when not to be transparent. Okay, that's a good practical tip to share with uh, our audience. Um, I know that you are also a big proponent of uh, vulnerability um, and what are the right ways to, I don't know if I could call it this way, a way to practice it or being able to show your vulnerability as a leader. Yep. Um, for anyone building a company, it's hard, like uh, as especially as a CEO, you're probably working a lot all the time and how is it that you strive the right balance um, and how do you make sure that you can also feel uh, vulnerable and why that even is important? So why it's important, um, it's because I, I, I believe that the like vulnerability in, in your professional and personal life is um, the best way to build meaningful relationships. That's That's what I believe. It's like, yes, you open yourself to be hurt, but the upside is you can have way um, more interesting, deeper relationships with people. And, and so I'm a big proponent of vulnerability for everyone. And so it has to start with yourself. And how you do it is um, just by by doing it. And if one example I, I can share, there are many more I could share is... Um, I've suffered from anxiety in the past and COVID was not easy for probably many people. It was definitely not easy for me. And especially the early days of COVID when we didn't know what would happen. I, you know, I couldn't go back to France. I was pregnant. All of this, um, I felt claustrophobic and because I couldn't go outside. Um, and I was super open with my team about this because when I feel anxious I can't be the best version of myself I can't do my best work um, and, and I think in these moments like COVID 
um, a lot of people experience this for the first time. And so to understand that they're not alone was important. But more importantly, I think people need to understand that I'm, you know, being the CEO of France is just a role I have. It's not what defines me. What defines me is um, what I care about, what I'm scared of, what are my weaknesses, what are my strengths, and showing as much as possible to them will help them understand who I am as a human being. And, and I always believe they will care more about the human being than the role I have. Awesome. Um, I want to end with so two questions. So I know that you mentor a lot of companies. Um, we talked about this earlier. What are some of the spaces that you're most excited about today? Like what are you seeing uh, in trends either in your field? Uh, so in the software as a service space, uh, productivity, communication space or, or beyond? I, so I care, I, there are things I care about and things I feel like I know well. <laughs> so it's true that softwares are things that I've gotten to know pretty well. And so I tend to invest mostly in softwares also because I believe that they can um, change whatever they're working on at scale, which I get super excited about. Um, I, I, I'd say the two things I'm most uh, excited about one is mental health uh, and the fact that people talk more about it. People want to solve it sooner. So during COVID, you've seen that many more people have experienced burnt out. And, and that's something that happened also before that will happen in the future. And so anything that you can do to prevent it from happening before it actually happens is super interesting. I was uh, talking to a company a few weeks ago teal.io who i found super interesting um they're at station f by the way teal yeah, yeah. I know, yes, <laughs> they, they are yeah. um they're amazing and then um everything about changing how people work is something that's super dear to my heart because i'm a huge believer in changing how people work and meaningfully change how you feel at work um one of the trends i've seen that i'm bullish on is uh, more asynchronous communication. So you've seen a lot with Slack and Zoom and the softwares that are such incredible softwares. They tend to have people spend time in them, which is good to a certain extent. I also believe that it can be unhealthy if you know I keep pinging you on Slack and you keep being disrupted. Um, and so for me, like the reason I like what we're doing at front, which is email, which by definition is asynchronous, which means that you can deal with it the moment it's convenient for you. Um, that's something I'm super bullish on. And there are lots of companies that are um, building products that aim at building more asynchronous communication. And, and this is a trend I've observed and I, I've in, invested in a few companies uh, doing this and, um, and, and I will keep doing so. Do you have some examples of names of what they do? Uh, yes. One example, the, the most recent one is called CLAP, uh, C-L-A-A-P. Um, you can check them online. And, and, and what they do is really aimed at reducing the number of meetings you have and having more uh, written or oral but asynchronous communication. Um, and they I think they're in beta right now, so I don't know if you can use them just yet, but at least they launch, so you can know what they are about. So I'd say mental health and future of work are the two things I'm passionate about. Super. Um, I have one last, last question um, about women in tech. Mathilde, you're in a lot of 
Forbes list of, you know, women top 30 under 30 and so on and so forth. What are some changes that you're seeing in this space? And what are some tips more specifically for the female founders out there? So I definitely see changes in a sense that I'm convinced that the more success we'll see with um, women, the more people will be inspired and then the more of them will have. And since the the numbers show that there are more of them, even if not enough, but more, it's like a positive trend that we should always highlight. My tip is, uh, I don't know if it's the biggest, one of the biggest differences I've observed in women entrepreneurs and and men is um, self-confidence. And I always notice that men to, tend to have more self-confidence and therefore show more self-confidence. And that's um, something that I want to change because your self-confidence is going to change so much because you inspire people by the confidence you show. So my tip would be to the problem with self-confidence is not something that you can change just by deciding you would change it. Like you wake up and all of a sudden you're thinking, I'm going to be self-confident. Instead, you should find people that believe in you and give you the confidence. Um, And you can be surrounded by men or women. It actually doesn't matter. But making sure that you find these people that show what's best in you and make you believe in yourself so that you can showcase the self-confidence and experience it is in my opinion, the most impactful thing you can do. Super. That's a very inspiring note to end on. Um, Thank you so much, Mathilde, for sharing with us today. Thank you, Cindy. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the Station F podcast. This episode is supported by TikTok. If you liked this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter or at Cindy at StationF.co. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Deezer. So make sure to follow us to not miss any of our upcoming episodes. See you soon.